Hello and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, a general agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship with and for your faith community. I'm Derek Weber, Director of Preaching Ministries. And I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. During this time of transition from virtual to in-person and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today, we are excited to welcome two guests to the podcast, Dr. Alice McKenzie and Dr. O. Wesley Allen from the Center for Preaching Excellence at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Alice M. McKenzie is the LeVan Chair of Preaching and Worship at Perkins School of Theology. She received her Ph.D. in Theology and Communication and Preaching in the Practical Theology Department of Princeton Seminary. She is an ordained elder in the North Texas Conference, originally from Pennsylvania, where she served several pastorates before coming to Perkins to teach in 2000. Her research interests include preaching biblical wisdom, including both proverbs and parables, preaching and creativity, and preaching to postmodern audiences with shortened attention spans in ways that engage their imaginations. In addition to her teaching role at Perkins, Dr. McKenzie directs the Perkins Center for Preaching Excellence at SMU. And then O. Wesley Allen Jr. is the Lois Craddock Perkins Professor of Homiletics. He got his Ph.D. in New Testament with a minor in homiletics at Emory University. He is an ordained elder who has served in the pastorate in campus ministry and has taught preaching at Drew Theological School, Lexington Theological School, and has been at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University since 2015. He has published and edited numerous books related to preaching and the Gospels, preaching in postmodernity, and preaching and ethical issues. Welcome, Alice and Wes. We are so pleased to have you with us and to have the level of expertise that you bring to this conversation, to Perkins currently, and to just the world of preaching in general. Before we really jump into our conversation, though, I would love to hear from both of you, how are you doing? What is going on in your life right now as we move into the summer? And what's something interesting that's going on for you in your life right now? Who's on first? (laughs) (laughs) Wes, you want to take it first? Sure, I'll be on first. Thanks for having us to talk about this pamphlet and all. I'm I'm excited to be here. So a little about what's going on. You mentioned in the intro how much things are changing in the church following COVID pandemic and also in our denomination, how much has been in flux and all. So one of the things I, I would say that really excites me these days is our students. I just, uh, student numbers are down across the, the, the United States and theological ed, but those who 
overcome, know what they're facing, and they're dedicated. And, and that really inspires me a lot. Mm-hmm. In terms of my research right now, I've, I'm focusing on a commentary on the Gospel of Mark that I've been working on for a few years, and hopefully I'm starting to get towards the end of it. And uh, it's a preaching critical commentary, right. and I'm really just having a ball working on that. So that's what my summer months are, are focused on. And it will be a multi-volume commentary, is that right? <laughs> if I had my desires, it would be, but it, um, the publisher says one volume. No, oh, they're, they're so limiting to us. So um, I uh, have taught for many years at Perkins and echo what Wes is saying about our students. I mean, I look mm. at the photo roster of the courses for the fall and I think, all right, God is still calling people to, to preach the word. And that is... That energizes me and keeps my zeal alive. Mm-hmm. We both enjoy, I think I can speak for, for both of us, that we have a specialized ministry. And that's part of what uh, we're trying to offer our gift in this pamphlet. But preaching, writing, and teaching as a sort of set-apart ministry, to me, it's, there's never been a more challenging or more rewarding time to be involved in this. I'm working on a new project um, <laughs> about friendship and preaching. And I'm also going to quite a few Little League baseball games. So my, that's uh, that's how my summer has been spent so far. What position do you play? Mom and uh, grandma in the stands. Are you one of those moms that yells at the umps or are you just there to encourage? No, I'm just there to encourage. We are glad that you are here with us and to share, as Lisa said, with lots of different experiences and, and wisdom that you have and I'll also say, just as a teaser, I'm working my way through Humorous, Alice's latest book about preaching and comic vision, uh, and I'm going to invite her back, and we're going to have a conversation about that, too. But but this time, as Wes was saying, things are going on in our denomination, and, and we found this resource that you created that's on your Preaching Excellence website that is titled Preaching to the Left Behind, Ideas for Preaching in the Wake of Disaffiliation and as the Denomination Looks Forward to General Conference 2024. We found this to be an amazing resource, and and we want to draw more preachers' attention to it uh, so that they can find out what's there. So tell us what caused you to write it. What are your motivations in writing the resource, and what are you hoping preachers might gain from it as they read this document? Well, this was all Wes's idea. So, so if everybody likes the article, then give him the credit. Uh, seriously, he uh, he talked to me, I guess, before Christmas, wasn't it? And said this this would be a good idea to that that you know we have a special uh, ministry, special expertise. Can we offer something to the church in this in this time? You know, when we think about preaching in conflict situations, the classic advice is to name the pain in the room. And so I think, Wes, uh, and I won't speak for you entirely, but it seems like what we're trying to do here is, um, is name the pain, but then come up with some strategies to address it. I mean, wouldn't, would that be accurate, Wes? Yeah, I mean, so when, when this sort of uh, hit us, annual conference after annual conference here in Texas and beyond, we're starting to have their disaffiliation votes. 
and I was teaching a class down in Houston. Mm. And so they're in the middle of the Texas Annual Conference who lost about 50% of their churches. And so students were coming into class or being online in class, and you, you couldn't get around it to other subject matter. You had to go through these discussions. And then every time I was on Facebook or Twitter looking at pastoral feeds or conversations, everybody's talking about this, the pain they feel. Also, a lot of unhealthy commentary from both, well, more than just two sides, but all sides of this arguments that's been going Mm. on and this breaking apart. And so a lot of people were just asking, I don't know what to say on Sunday. And as Alice and I talked about this, this is not really a resource about what to say on Sunday, because that Sunday is past for many people, but how to, what to say in the many Sundays that follow the wake of these disaffiliations and the ones that are still coming. I mean, how, how do we talk in the pulpit honestly about these matters? One of the things that bothered me before these hit, how many churches weren't talking about all that was going on at the denomination, hoping it would go away or it would just be clear what to do or whatever. And so maybe we should have put a pamphlet earlier out about how to talk about these things. But now we're trying to help sort of re-envision the conversation uh, about the church Mm -hmm. from the pulpit going forward. Yeah. And I think it's a way of exercising leadership and giving some strategies for how do we preach a pastoral, prophetic word. And there's an element of patience, I think, because the conflict is ongoing. So even if if we, we think it would have been good to have it out a few months earlier, it's out now. <laughs> and we do hope people will, will take advantage of it. One thing that we name in the essay is that, that this is an eschatological moment, mm-hmm. uh, a moment of, I think we say, mournful expectation and hopeful grief. And so into this moment, you know, we've already experienced God's grace. We have not fully enacted that. In this moment, uh, we we wanted to to offer some guidelines, some strategies, and inspiration Mm -hmm. for preachers. And honestly, that's one of the things I value so much about this essay is it's, I, I think we're starting, we're not there yet, but we're starting in this conversation within the denomination to say, okay, we have to actually address how we're feeling. We have to go through it. We've got to start naming these things. And I think that's really important. But y'all have really dug in, in this essay on strategies. And one of the opening strategies in your article is challenging or changing the metaphor that we use to describe this season of disaffiliation. So why, in your view, is siblings a better approach than divorce to help us understand what is happening around and between us in our denomination right now? Yeah, so if you read out there in sort of the the popular discourse, or you hear people talking, they talk about this divorce happening in the church right mm-hmm. now. So it's like this married couple that's splitting and all the pain, and there is a lot of pain. But before this affiliations had occurred, I had argued that maybe it is time to look at letting some people go in different directions if need mm-hmm. be. But wanted to shift the way we think about that and think about siblings growing up in the same household and then finding their own paths and going different ways. And the reason I wanted to suggest this kind of linguistic shift is that 
so much of the rhetoric right now is divisive, angry, hurtful from from different sides, and I, somehow we're going to have to get along in the church with a capital C after all this. We need to find ways to work together in missions, certainly in disaster relief. We need to be able to pray for those who left or who stayed or who, who differ from us. We're in a culture right now that that doesn't value compromise and conversation. Instead, it values debate and division. So we're 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 both contributing to that and a victim of that in our mm-hmm. denomination right now. And if we can just change the language we use for that, it doesn't erase the pain of siblings going in different directions and all that. And we we still have to sort of divide up the parents' household, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it, it at least offers a path down which we might have a family reunion in the future. Right. Yeah, the thing I like about about it is that that the divorce metaphor expresses the grief and the pain and the and the conflict, but the shift to the sibling metaphor opens uh, opportunity for new possibilities mm-hmm. uh, of working together. So I I think it's a great shift. No, I love that. I we we receive questions of various kinds from across the denomination on a weekly basis and recently I received a question about how do how would you recommend we celebrate holy communion on the last sunday before our church disaffiliates and i i mean that was a challenging question and i love this metaphor because it's this idea that oh if we're siblings there's an assumption we're still coming back to the family table. We can be so different and we can go our own ways, but there's something about the table. We come back for our family meal, right? We hope at least someday, if not on a regular basis, we're coming back to that family meal. So I just really appreciate what, as you said, the the multitude of opportunities we have to think about worship, to think about mission, to think about our life together post-disaffiliation using that siblings metaphor. I think it's important to remember that even if some churches leave, et cetera, there's still going to be people in congregations that are divided. Mm -hmm. How we talk Mm -hmm. about those who left will influence how those who stayed, how they experience their own congregational life, their own faith journey, as well as others. So, I mean, there are a lot of churches that were, you know, had a vote of less than two thirds. Right. So they didn't leave, but they had a majority of people who <laughs> voted to leave. So the pastor needs to be very careful in trying to to mend the wounds in, in the, that community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than fan the flames, right? I, I think it's also possible that the siblings talks about a connection, even if we don't come back to the table, <laughs> even if we stay yeah, separated, yeah. you know, we still yeah. have some sort right. of connection. I hear a lot of talk about, you know, we're still part of the family, all that kind of stuff, but the feel isn't there. And maybe by mm-hmm. shifting the metaphor, we can move a little bit deeper. The The other thing I appreciated about the article was that an invitation for us to look a little more critically or a little more openly about our history to say, while this feels unprecedented, feels like nothing like this has ever happened before, history says that may not be so. So as you're, as you're presenting that, what events or, or circumstances historically came to your mind as you're presenting this resource? Right. Well, one thing, I don't think we can assume that our congregations know a whole lot about ecclesial history. Mm-hmm. And so it may be news to them that, and perhaps even reassuring news to them that major conflicts in the church are not a new thing, and that they do not, in fact, as we say in the essay, they don't mean the end of our Christian faith. 
So that's kind of a baseline affirmation that I think would be very important to, mm-hmm. to point out. And as preachers, then, I think we, we are to help our congregations learn from, rather than repeat, the destructive dynamics that have come after many of the major splits in church history. So to me, it's like a matter of looking around, helping people look around and realize that ecumenical vision doesn't mean that we're all homogenized and mm-hmm. that the goal is that we all think the same and practice the same. With, with regard to historical events, when, when we look back at different schisms and splits, like the schism of 1054, the Protestant Reformation, the split of the Methodist Episcopal Church from the Methodist Episcopal Church South in the uh, 1830s, and then this more recent split, it's always a stew, as I read it. It's always a, a mix of theology and politics and moral convictions mm-hmm. on both sides. To me, I think the challenge is to ask ourselves— and ask our congregations to think about their motivations. And are those motivations worthy of the pain of separation? And if the answer is yes, then I think in our preaching, then our task is to challenge people to look forward, mm-hmm. uh, having looked back, and uh, not get bogged down in blame and negativity. But uh, we talk in the article about the ugly strife and the demonizing each side but to claim the convictions that motivate us and then try to live out those convictions in our community and help people to think about what that might look like. One of the preaching resources that we use talks about how preaching should have a what, a so what, and a now what. And so I think that's, that's our task, to um, guide people along that path, mm-hmm. helped by history. I, I think, too, that, that a historical reflection gives us a little more hope or faith in the church itself. Because you know? sometimes these things come up and we feel like, well, it's the end. You know, the church will dissolve and disappear. And yet by examining the past, saying, okay, we've been through this before and the church survives, you know, and it mm-hmm. allows us to right. lean into that. The, the phoenix rises from the ashes. Yeah, exactly. I, I would advise every congregation out there when fall comes around to, to celebrate Reformation Sunday. We don't all do that, mm-hmm. but this is a chance right. to to talk about what's going on now in light of uh, of that mm. moment. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the yeah. other strategies you offer is to quote preach centripetally. <laughs> yeah. What does that mean <laughs> for you? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and how does that help us navigate these difficult waters that we're currently living right. in? Right. Well, the first task for me is always to remember the difference between centrifugal and centripetal. Yes. <laughs> and once I master that, then then I think uh, a centrifugal force. Uh, I, I was never a physic, never got an A mm-hmm. in physics, but this is I know this. A centrifugal force multiplies and splinters from the center out, and you know, looking at history, we observe that that happens a lot, and that multiplicity isn't all bad, as we point out. But there is a diversity in the body of Christ we can celebrate. But in a congregation divided over disaffiliation, it seems like there's already plenty of centrifugal force going on, splintering. And so can we preach to exert a more centripetal force to pull toward the center and focus the congregation on actions and beliefs that can unify us in in positive actions in the world despite our disagreements? And it seems like that could apply for individuals thinking about their own existential experience, congregations, and the two denominations moving moving ahead. 
what can we do despite our disagreements to pool our energy and our resources to uh, contribute to God's mercy and justice in our communities? And I, in the article, we talk about John Wesley's sermon, The Catholic Spirit, and how he has the two lines from 2 Kings 10, where it says, if your heart is right with my heart, take my hand. And in that sermon, then Wesley says, take my hand doesn't mean be of my opinion, embrace my modes of worship, but love me, pray for me, and inspire me to works of love. And to me, that, that expresses centripetal force in preaching and is strategy. It's deeper than a strategy. It's an mm-hmm. approach that transcends the centuries. Mm-hmm. So, centripetal. <laughs> so, so the invitation is for the preacher to raise these questions, to invite people to think in those directions, or, or to do that him or herself? You know, how, all of the above. What? Right, right. Yeah, all of the above. Well, uh, one, of the, one of the places in the essay we talk, about, we talk about how we're about preaching who the church can be, but it's not all on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. It's also about who God has promised to be for the church. So it's a, it's a, um, you got to have mm-hmm. grace in there with the exhortation and challenge. I think a call to grace is always important, <laughs> particularly in our tradition, to lean into that. One, another point of division, maybe more culturally, actually, than, than in the church, is this whole idea of evangelicalism. And you all address that in this article. And, and it seems to me that that what you want to do as you're presenting these ideas, this wisdom, is that you want to move away from an us and them, you know, who those evangelicals or we evangelicals or whatever, and approach a, a wider affinity to the terms, even as some are trying to move away from them because they have a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So are we able, in the middle of the church, the church that remains, to, to reclaim the term evangelical and make it useful for us in the present age. And, and how would we go about doing that, do you think? Yeah, so, so let, me, let me go after this one, and let me <laughs> come in through the back door of what I would think is sort of a correction of something you said, that we're in this pamphlet trying to get away from us and them. Actually, I'm okay with us and them, so long as it's not a hierarchical division. Okay. It's a recognition of differences. Uh, siblings, again, are different. They go in different directions, but that doesn't mean that when I say us, I mean better and them mm-hmm. horrible, evil people, right? And I'm afraid that in the midst of our pain, that's the way it often becomes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we can still claim an open table which says something about God's view of us all, even while those people who meet in this building have these sets of views and those who meet in that building have that set of views. Now, in relation then to evangelicals versus mainliners or progressives or even moderates for that matter, we do try to help reclaim that term a little bit. Fred Craddock had a sermon entitled I, something like, I'm a Pentecostal, or we're mm-hmm. all Pentecostals, you know, and he was trying a Pentecostal. Well, I think we could have a similar sermon, we're all evangelicals. You can't look at the beginning of the Wesleyan Methodist movement in Britain and not see it as evangelical. Sure. But the definition of what it means to be evangelical has changed 
over history. So in the pamphlet, we sort of just in a very short shrift try and talk about that shift from all of us, all Protestants basically, especially in the context of the colonies in the United States being evangelical, being frontier kinds of religions, to then what happens in response to modernism, especially as expressed, say, in Darwin. And then evangelicalism and fundamentalism especially becomes over against Mm -hmm. in a different way. And then you get into the late 70s with the Christian right coming up, and it moves a different way. So I want to claim – I want preachers to help congregations that are mainliners, staying in, left behind, claim that indeed we are evangelical in this way, even though we are not in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that will help smooth some of the differences – while also naming the differences in a way that doesn't always have to be looking down upon or being angry about. I I think, though, that there's still an inclination for the mainline watching a news report about the evangelicals who are supporting Donald Trump or, or whatever for the space to say, that's not me. That's, you know, yes. that's not what I mean by evangelical, you know. Absolutely. So, And I I think we, I mean, in a sense, in the public sphere, not just the word evangelical, but the word Christian has been co-opted by certain groups. And I I guess I might want to even change my language. Those of us who are not part of those groups have allowed the the title of Christian to be co-opted by those groups. So we're not out there using our voices to offer a different Christian perspective at the same time they offer their Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's part of the response to Christian nationalism that that is rising in yes. the midst of all this too. You know, right. how do we stand against it? How do we claim who we are and and stand against it? Absolutely, right. Which really speaks to the influence that the preacher has at the pulpit to help not just teach the people how, like teach the congregation, show the congregation, edify the congregation, but actually lead the congregation and model for the congregation. How do we remember who we are and how do we name that? You know, we're at work right now at Discipleship Ministries to rework and relaunch some of our foundational documents that help us reflect on the meaning of baptism and Holy Communion and what it means to be a member of a United Methodist Church. And you, in this, in this essay, invite preachers to help congregations reclaim this shared identity. So what do you think needs that kind of reexamining and reclaiming within the United Methodist Church? I, one of the things that's concerned me is sort of, again, the popular discourse around this matter mm-hmm. is from those who are staying United Methodist, blaming those, especially blaming clergy who are taking away right. churches. Now, I understand that pain, and I, I you know, I, I have some of that sentimentality myself, but in truth, the pastors who are leading those churches away are the, the last one in a long line of pastors who've served those churches. Right. And part of the ecumenical movement from the 1950s on has been diminishing the uniqueness of each denomination. And I think one of the things that concerns me most is how easily some churches have left the denomination over issues of sexuality, certainly, but even over issues of we want to own our property or et cetera, Mm -hmm. and don't feel like they're losing 
a connection to who we are. And so one of the, I guess what I'm trying to say is what worries me is that over the decades, we have not done a good enough job of teaching people in the pews what it means to be United Methodists, who we are as heirs of the Wesleyan movement in Britain, of the EUB movement in the Midwest, all those kinds of things, you know, that who we are so that if a congregation were to decide to leave, they, they would deal with those matters. What does, how has our identity shifted from that? And so part of what we're really proffering here is that we need to, to step up where our forebears in the pulpit did not. I mean, I, I'll bet if you ask most congregations, laity, what it means to be United Methodist, they would find a few little key terms, maybe provenient grace, few of them might have holiness, etc. But beyond that, and the quadrilateral, I bet. And then beyond that, I, I think it gets pretty watered down. So there used to be a day where most of the people in the pews also sat in Sunday school rooms, and that day is gone to a great extent. So preachers need to take on the teaching role in the pulpit, and one of the things we need to be teaching is what it means to to have this identity as United Methodists. So I think this goes along with exactly what you're saying you're doing with these documents about what is what is our understanding of baptism of the table, of ordination. In a sense, then, a lot of what this is about is preaching ecclesiology through a Wesleyan lens, who we are as individuals and community through this particular lens. And frankly, I think those who have left need to do that themselves too in the GMC and others they've got they're going to have to rethink what it means to be ecclesiological we've 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 defined ourselves so much in terms of a couple of issues important issues mind you but a couple of issues that we now need to when we're not fighting and it's been very nice to see reports from annual conferences that are people saying it didn't feel as divisive as it has in the past i mean right. we need to celebrate that and build on that moment and say okay so who are we Mm-hmm. So, Wes, one of the things I'm hearing, and I don't want to boil down the thickness of what you've just said because there's so much to explore, but one of the things that immediately occurred to me is it sounds to me like you're saying the book of discipline is a document that should occasionally show up in our preaching, that what is in there is an expression yeah. of our ecclesiology and some of it needs to actually be talked about from the pulpit, not just so that people know what it means to be United Methodist, but so that they understand that our polity is connected to what we believe and say and do as the church. Absolutely. Yeah, what about the social yeah. social right. principles, right? And the yeah, historical documents. I mean, yep. because mm-hmm. some of those leaving uh, tried to convince churches to go saying we were going to give up the Trinity and the resurrection and things like that. So going back to the Articles of Religion as well right. and those things. I mean, I don't even know if people know those exist in mm-hmm. some churches. And so it doesn't have to be lecture time, but bringing right. these into the sermon mm-hmm. uh, more consistently mentioning our history, our theology, and our polity, I think is way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I have a way that an acronym that I figured out to help people going up for their ordination interviews to remember our doctrinal <laughs> standards. <laughs> so it's, let's see if I can remember it. General Rules, GR, Articles of Religion, A, 
Confession of Faith of EUB, C, Explanatory Notes, E, and S is Sermons of John Wesley. And all of it put together spells graces. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, so uh, I don't know if that's maybe something they get from the course above and beyond their uh, tuition money. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's, there's never been a time more, more crucial for teaching. I agree. And how can, how can they hear without a teacher, right? It's, it's on us. Well, but also, as, as Wes said, it's not lecture time. No, it's not. So how do we no. creatively help people live into that reality? That's, right. uh, that's a thing that's fascinated me. A lot of your work, Alice, in particular, yeah. in, in our bi- your bio, you talk about preaching and creativity. And the phrase, making a right. scene in the pulpit, appears in this article as well. And I know that that's, that's from some of right. your work. So h- how do you imagine preachers enacting enacting their preaching, enacting these themes, enacting this relationship to help congregations and help the denomination as a whole in in this time? Right. Well, that's that's a big question, but (laughs) um, I've given it some thought. So it seems like we have two things going on. We have a craving and a need for teaching, solid, robust teaching, and we have shortened attention spans. I used to think that wasn't a thing, but it's a thing. <laughs> and so if you put those two together, then how do we, without dumbing things down, how do we make them more vivid for people? And I think of it in terms of inviting people off the porch, you know, because a lot of times we tell people about God, we tell people about this, we tell people about that, but how do we invite them into the house? And so one way that I think we do that, of course, we tell stories, we tell anecdotes, we give examples, but but I've crafted this idea, and it's not you know, other people have talked about it before, but I've called it making a scene in the pulpit. And a scene, you got a setting, you got some sensory details, you've got some conflict, you've got some characters. And one way of putting it that I've heard Wes talk about is that you narrate your exegesis. Mm. In other words, you, well, for example, use some scenes from scripture. So rather than just telling people about the situation in Matthew's time and what he was dealing with, put the two sides on either side in the fellowship hall separated by a, an aisle and they're in conflict, and Matthew comes up the center aisle with the parable of the unforgiving servant mm-hmm. and shares it with the things. Uh, and, you know, we have creative license for that kind of thing. So it's basically not just telling people, but showing them. A lot of times in working on my own sermons and listening to others, as, especially as people get to near the end of their sermon, I think, just show me, mm-hmm. show me how this would look if, if I were to live this out. And so I think kind of uh, piggybacking on what Wes has been saying about our need for reviving our historical and theological foundations, can we use some scenes from Wesley's history, right, which, which uh, is very compelling, like the, um, the scene from his storm at sea, faith crisis, mm-hmm. his, his experience of justification, his sorrow at the death of his brother, Charles, which led to the writing of O Come, Thou Traveler Unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of beautiful uh, stories about the writings of hymns like Precious Lord and, and many others. So can we uh, cry? It doesn't take a whole lot to, to craft a scene. And in that scene, there is uh, teaching material, but it, it comes across in a way that holds people's attention. And so um, scenes can come from scripture, from uh, contemporary life, popular culture. And another way of addressing our current conflict over sexual identity would be to to use examples of, uh, say, a gay couple or a trans person and make them an embodiment of God's grace enacting that in the world. It's kind of a subtle, positive affirmation 
So there are all kinds of ways, I think, to use scripture, our own lives, history, and theology to invite people in, to show people what it it would look like to live in the way that responds to God's mercy and God's uh, desire for justice in the world. So what do you say to those who say, I'm not a creative person, or or, I'm not a performer or actor or whatever? I know this is a big conversation. We shouldn't start Right. right now, but... But it just it occurs to me as you <laughs> right. as you offer that, as you suggest that, that right. there'll be some pushback. Right, right, right. Well, everyone has an imagination, and as as I'm doing research now in some of this, the imagination is our ability mentally to transcend time, uh, space, and current circumstances. And everyone has that ability. To me, if we can help people to cultivate that, then it's it's just not true that people aren't. People don't, if you have an imagination and it was given to you by God, then begin to use it. And part of that is just become attentive to the details uh, of life around you and within you. I just don't buy that people that say they're not creative. (laughs) I I wouldn't say that to them, but I would say, um, you know, start noticing what you see. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Give yourself permission is is the main thing. (laughs) Give yourself from it. Well, that's a big deal, yeah. And um, and as you approach text, yeah. walk around the text, kick the tires. The text wants to be in dialogue, not just to prescribe. Mm. Well, and a lot of people who think they're not good storytellers in the pulpit can tell a great story at the dinner table. Right. Yeah. It's a matter yeah. of transferring yes. some of those abilities and working on it. You know, students who come right. to our intro preaching classes aren't the greatest preachers at the beginning, but you see the potential there. It takes a long time to mm-hmm. to build up the skills to figure out not just what story works, but then how to tell it so that it works best in this particular homiletical context. And so being conscientious and continuing to work on that, and part of it is not just rushing to get your sermon done at the end of the week, frankly. Right. You know, you've yeah. got to spend right. time on it, as we all say. Right, right. You got to have time to notice, right? right? Sure. Well, and De- yeah, Derek sure. knows that I can't like go not mention music. Uh, poor <laughs> Derek is surrounded by us musicians, but I, I'm very struck by um, an organ professor told me one time. You know, we can talk about excellence as perfection, or we can talk about excellence as giving the best that you have. And I wonder how that also helps with the permission giving to be creative. I'm not going to get better unless I do it, right? So if I give it the best Mm -hmm. I have this time, it may be different. In some ways, we hope it's going to be different than if I did that every week. And a year from now, I'm giving that creative storytelling, embodying the story with the people, right? But stepping out and giving the best I have this Sunday is enough, to get the ball started. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be what a seasoned 30-year preacher would do. It can be what I'm doing with the best I have in this time. Mm -hmm. Right. And and a big part of it in terms of approaching text is a good question is what if. Mm -hmm. Right? Like what if God had said, oh, to Jesus in Gethsemane, oh, well, I had no idea you didn't want to do it. (laughs) I mean, maybe you could have told me that earlier. Or I think a really interesting sermon series would be on uh, all the people that Jesus, I wish Jesus had appeared to mm. after the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Like I wish Jesus had appeared at the foot of Pilate's bed and just scared the willies <laughs> out of them, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, some giving ourselves permission, part of that is humor, but, uh, you know, you don't want to trivialize important truths, but but uh, we are very somber. Yes. Yeah, yeah. To the point of drollness, <laughs> if that's a word. 
So yeah, creativity is. I think I think Wes, I agree that uh, it does need to be practiced and exercised, and you got to give yourself permission. Well, we've opened a whole nother can of worms we could <laughs> run down for a long time, but yeah, we, we kind of need to end this one so that we can start another one at another time. Thank you both for coming. What what I see in this resource that you've created is encouragement. Encouragement mm-hmm. to, to speak, to continue to be the church, to, to call church to the reality of who we are and what's going on, and let's be honest about that. And, and I want to thank you for for the resource. Thank you for the time that you've given to us. Tell us real quick, how do, how can someone find this article we've been talking about? Where do they go to, to access it? So the Perkins Center for Preaching Excellence that Alice directs and which I work with on their landing site. So if you just search for Perkins Center for Preaching Excellence, it threads through a number of our major things going on. And this one's right there at the top. So if you go to that top page, you'll find it and get to it. And you can also find our other resources there about peer groups and preacher's toolbox and other things. Lots of great resources at that site. We will put a link in the description of this podcast, and so we invite people to do that. Again, thank you, Wes and Alice, for for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you to those who are listening. We appreciate that you've been a part of our conversation. We hope it's been helpful to you. And remember, you can always find more information at our website, umcdiscipleship.org. So until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you continue to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.